Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Spotify enjoy a $230 million gimlet, digital journalism faces its own publishing crisis, and Instagram scrabbles to act on sensitive content. Plus, why Sky News turn the cameras on their own team and whether Will Young could take down the Grand Tour. And in the Media Quiz, we play Love and Hate. You're going to, I mean, you're going to love it. It's all to come on today's Media Podcast. And joining us today, making her media podcast debut, it's the founder of podcast production company Broccoli Content, Renee Richardson. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Thanks. Now, um, when we met, you were working for Panoply. Yes. Before that, you worked at Acast. Yes. Now you have your own podcast production company. Yes. Uh, With all that experience, what is the gap that you're trying to fill? Um, I saw where, well, I know where everyone's skeletons are buried. And so I, you're going to use bribery to... <laughs> but I just learned from what everyone else wasn't doing and just figured that the podcasting world needs to be a bit more inclusive. So that's not just race, it's just different experiences. Everyone shouldn't need to work at the BBC to work in audio. What, what do you mean by that? Because like, across all media platforms, you'd almost think podcasting is the one that shouldn't theoretically need any nudge at all because theoretically the barrier to entry is so low. It is, but there's only a certain type of podcast or a certain type of person who's allowed a platform. So you can make your podcast, doesn't mean anyone's going to listen to it, but there's podcast companies like Panoply, well, they don't make content anymore, but now Gimlet and, well, we're going to talk about that. Lots of different podcast companies who make podcasts, but they choose the same kind of talent. They literally look to the BBC and they make content with them. There's loads of people who the BBC haven't even touched who are available to make shows. So that's kind of where I come in, because I never worked at the BBC. And you've also just started an email group called Sounds in Colour. Yes. What's that about? So Sounds in Colour, I seem to be the um, people of colour representative for the UK audio community. <laughs> so everyone... They did ask me, but I just felt... <laughs> But everyone emails me when they're looking for um, recommendations and they've got jobs. Everyone comes to me. And I actually don't know every person of colour in England, weirdly. Um, (laughs) So I thought, let me tweet whether people thought I should start a group. And yeah, everyone said yes, so I did. So it's not my group. It's just something I literally did the entry in Google. But it's just a place where people of colour can join together, share jobs, share opportunities. And then people can also email them jobs and opportunities righto and if you're listening and you think you should join that group how do you do that yeah just email sounds in color at googlegroups.com okay excellent and uh, making a much welcome return this week it is the deputy editor of metro.co.uk alex hudson uh alex i noticed the other night you ranting about an egg oh, the instagram egg <laughs> um, i don't understand why that thing is so popular i don't understand why instagram lost its mind over it i don't understand for, for people who aren't on instagram and, and don't like eggs okay briefly I realised I should have started at the beginning. I assume that this, no. egg, this egg has become the entire world now. Like the egg has overtaken everything. Like I said, you're ranting. Um, and an ad exec came up with an idea of, I know Kylie Jenner has the most popular picture on Instagram, so I want to beat it and I want to do it in the most ridiculous way possible. So I will upload a stock image of an egg and then push it towards the internet and say, let's make this egg the most popular thing ever on Instagram. And it worked. And for whatever reason, and I think... The and it went all the way to the Super Bowl ad break. The thing that's annoying the ads execs at the moment is that they, no one has any idea quite exactly how it works, so they can't repeat it. But then... It sounds like a good story. Why did it upset you so much? Because all of the, the, amount of, the amount of time that people spend on these serious stories, these beautiful bits of journalism, 
and still it's this pointless egg that gets that's now believed to be worth ten million dollars. And so the brand Hulu. Um, <laughs> Voldemort's declaring his interest. <laughs> um, and so the brand Hulu did an advert during the Super Bowl about mental health that this egg is now worth a believed $10 million just because of the number of followers it has, build up the amount of ad and column inches that were written about this egg, and it's not what people should care about. And I appreciate that makes you sound precious and pretentious and makes arrogant like and media idiot. That's what it sounds like. But it, it's easy and it's stupid and... Journalism has to be better than that. Wow. Okay. And there I was, falling into the trap by opening our show. <laughs> it's all about media news journalism by talking about the egg. Uh, well, let's start with, uh, I think what is actually unquestionably the big story of the week, and it is a podcasting story, so I'm glad you're here, Renee, which is Spotify, who've been shopping. Uh, what have they bought? They've bought Gimlet Media, which is, yeah, an original content company started by Anne, um, Alex Bloomberg and Matt Lieber. And they've paid $230 million for it. Yep. Why? I don't know why they paid that much, I'll be honest. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, hey, good on them. Um, but Gimlet... Have they overpaid kind of, for it? Not overpaid, but maybe they're going to grow into it. We don't know the details of the deal, because I know Gimlet have um, a production company for TV. Their big thing is IP. So it's um, testing podcasts. Um, and selling the format to TV. So that's quite Spotify a big... Spotify interested in that, are they? Spotify... Spotify want to take over the world. Well, in the blog post by Daniel Eck, Alex, it was pretty clear that their intention was to take over the audio world. We want to be the one place where you come for all your audio. It doesn't look like they are interested in developing ideas for telly. This is just about getting podcasts to bring people to Spotify. I don't think I agree with you. I think actually what... The, the weird thing about the internet at the moment is that everybody wants to overtake everything. So TikTok wants to take over Instagram, Instagram wants to come after Snapchat, Snapchat wants to come after YouTube, YouTube after Spotify, and so on and so on and so on. And Spotify tried and failed with video. And if you look at the sort of, there's uh, Sharon Van Etten music at the moment, and if you look at the new James Blake album, they're starting to experiment with video formats in audio. And they can see the gap in the market. They can see that Apple is kind of neglecting their podcast format. And they're not really focusing on it while everyone else is running around saying this is this huge growing industry and Spotify wants to take over the world. Like I've had off the record briefings from Spotify and people very close to Spotify about the sort of stuff they're planning. And I can't talk about it in specific, but it's not just it's building them as a publishing platform, not just a hosting platform. And that's where YouTube's going. That's where Facebook is desperate to avoid. But that's if you look at Apple, where it's doing with music and Apple with TV. It's it's the two forks of the digital industry. Is are, do you become a publishing platform or do you just host other people's content? And Spotify is choosing to to produce. So it's difficult, isn't it? Because the Apple proposition doesn't really exist yet. We're all guessing as to what it might be in detail. But something that does is Netflix. It seems to me that's mm. the most easy analogy to make, isn't it? Do Spotify want to be Netflix for audio? And if so, does that mean exclusivity around Gimlet content? And if so, isn't that going to piss all the listeners off? I mean. Everyone wants to be the Netflix for audio. Everyone, that's the thing that everyone says. Spotify, I actually made a podcast last year for Spotify exclusively, which was um, dabbling with a visual element. Um, they have a thing called um, Spotlight, which is a playlight, um, playlist. It didn't come out here, but it did come out in America. So here was just an audio podcast. They just want to be the place that you, they just want to have every, your, all of your experiences in one place. And, you know, good for them for trying, but I've got a Spotify premium account and I listen to it on an Apple phone. Mm. So either way, Apple are winning. So that's not, they don't really care. They kind of still have control over these platforms, like Facebook found out the other week. And it's all data, isn't it? They just want us to have all of our user habits in one place. But Netflix haven't done that. I have Netflix. I have Amazon Prime. If I, had a, if, if I was in America, I would have Hulu as well. So it's like they've not got everything. Netflix and um, Amazon Prime are fighting over content. Like it leaves Netflix, it goes to Amazon Prime, all that stuff. So you will never have the one place. But it is good that um, Spotify are investing in content, a place for you to kind of have a one-stop shop in a way but it but it isn't a one-stop shop if it doesn't have everything i mean that's the thing isn't it or, or maybe it does maybe it has well they're op- they've opened it up so the same way you have to su- um submit to apple which everyone forgets you do have to submit your podcast to apple um spotify is open now so they can't go and backdate all the what hun- like five hundred thousand. <laughs> but anyone starting a podcast now can have their podcast on spotify and they opened that last but for year. a consumer it'll be irritating if some of the shows that i want to listen to are exclusive to audible some of them are exclusive to the bbc some of them are exclusive to spotify and i've but got to have five different but apps. everyone's forgetting
getting like you have to, everyone's watched TV before. Sometimes you have to change the channel. That's that would be <laughs> a reasonable comparison, apart from the fact that podcasting started on the purest of things. It's an RSS feed; you can get it anywhere. It did, but so did TV. There was only I believe. I mean, I wasn't there, but I've heard. You weren't like, at your clinic. You weren't <laughs> at the launch of the BBC at Alexandra Palace. At the launch of television, <laughs> there was one channel. I heard. That is correct. <laughs> and I can so, verify exclusively <laughs> on the media podcast. That was true. If you look at the BBC Sounds app and. That, there's a lot of arguments for and against that app, but one thing it is doing, it's a power play, is you don't need to go to Apple Podcasts, you don't need to go to Spotify, come into the BBC, you have Radio 4, Radio 5, and all of these podcasts and these new brilliant, exciting audio formats that they're working on, all in one place. Stay with the BBC, stay with the BBC, retention time, all of that But the BBC are producing that content. I mean, the thing about this is if you are an independent podcaster, Renee, mm-hmm. and, well, why am I putting this hypothetically? You are an independent <laughs> podcaster, <Yeah. right? laughs> and, and your stuff goes on to Spotify, like yeah. you said, because it's open and actually anyone can now and then Spotify starts bringing in premium new content hosted by footballers and celebrities to get the punters in and whatever your stuff does that deserve a slice of the premium subscription that listeners are paying to be on the Spotify service because the fact that they can access your show in the same place might be part of the reason they carry on being there and you're not going to see any of it if I brought in a big audience I'm sure Spotify would try and um, buy me they're basically signing up shows and giving you money they are doing that so if I was bringing in enough audience to Spotify, they would do that. So I would get a slice of the pie. But what if you weren't? Like, if you're saying if you're bringing, like, 200 people, they're No, solid. I'm saying, what if you're bringing 100,000 people? <laughs> They'll probably sign you up. And really? Give you money, yeah. All right, I'll shut up then. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, 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 what that's what they would do. That's what they would do. If you were bringing 100,000 people to their platform, you're getting signed up. Mm, that's really like the volume of audience can't be the possible like so same as there are this is a Stuart Lee I'm stealing this idea off Stuart Lee but the idea that 10,000 people really care about something is way more important than 100,000 people kind of listening to it and not really caring and I think that's the nuance that you risk losing with this the more people that listen to it the better it is we you know we're going to talk about digital journalism in a minute and that's the model that's slowly falling away it's how much people listen to something how much people care about something how much people remember something that there aren't any metrics at the moment which Spotify risks losing and again Daniel X blog post said they're going to spend many more hundreds of millions of dollars on this over the next year is it the right play podcasting I just think I personally think it's exciting because I started podcasting because I like it but I also do like money (laughs) <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, I have bills to pay. And people who you say, oh, it's for the love, they're obviously making money somewhere else. And good for you, but I only make my money podcasting. So I like when a big brand says they're going to spend loads of money in it because it means I might be able to get a part of it. And they're not going to buy me, clearly, but I could pitch content to them. They're spending money on content. They're spending money on signing shows, like I said. These are all facts. So it means that if you have a good idea... They, you might be able to get your show made. And before you only had to go to, what, pitch to BBC, maybe Audible. So it's good to have another player. That's a good thing. I suppose it's good as well, Alex, to get advertisers used to the idea that they can advertise on podcasters like they advertise on radio and TV. I think that's already happening. So I think maybe a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, that wasn't the case. I think whatever happened in the last year, whether it be Serial, whether it be the media podcast, whether it be one of your now, how many podcasts are you on at the moment? Oh, too too many to mention. It's very kind of you to suggest that you, know, you could. It's hit this sort of point of consciousness with the commercial execs and they're taking notice because they know that the audiences to podcasts are the most loyal. They know that they actually listen. They don't just like sit there. You know, you click through some news stories. You have to listen to a podcast. And commercial organisations want to be part of the ones that are most exciting, the ones that get people talking. And it doesn't matter about the million people listening to it. It's that those conversations are happening and that's moving up the priority list for commercial companies. Okay, some of that will come into play with our next story as well and that's that it's been a pretty terrible week for online journalism in the UK with the closure of the digital brand for women, The Pool, and also a confirmation now of job losses at BuzzFeed in London which we talked about in the last episode being on the horizon. Uh, Alex, what happened with The Pool? The Pool started with Lauren Laverne, co-founder Sam Baker and they really wanted to offer a platform to... Um, women's lifestyle journalism, which at the time really wasn't getting focused, at least in the sort of actual voices. You were getting the sort of fashion and beauty um, content because that was very lucrative commercially. But what you weren't getting is real voices, particularly from LGBT backgrounds, particularly from BAME backgrounds. And they wanted to open that up. And it was successful for a time. And they had some big names in, service columnists. They had some really exciting new voices. And they were growing something. And no matter who I talked to, they all talk about how great it was and how much good content they were producing. Why past tense? 
I mean, aside from business model, I mean, is it not still popular at this point until we went through this very recent problem? Were women not reading it? It was popular, but the problem is with advertising revenue going through a slump at the moment and without it charging for content, without it setting up a subscription model, which the bull should have done. It was paying its contributors a lot of money for its content, particularly the high-profile contributors, and it wasn't making ends meet. I mean, this is the problem with a lot of online digital journalism, isn't it, Rene? You know, to get a growth in audience, you have to start paying for premium content. But if the audience aren't prepared to pay for the premium content, the advertising isn't there. There is literally no money. You know, it's a pyramid scheme. Yeah, from what I could say, because my actual um, neighbour worked at the pool (laughs) and she was made redundant. I think they started making redundancies last summer. um, And then it kind of went downhill. But yeah, from what I could see before all of the money stuff, Everyone was really supportive of the platform and, you know, gave loads of new um, writers of colour opportunities. But the audience, in some ways, do like to pay for content if it's visual. They don't like paying for written content. And there are some, like, smaller magazines like Black Ballad offering, you know, subscription. You get the editorials and things like that. And people are paying, but it's really, really minimal. And so the pool just went too big too soon. I think the pool's problem was that it didn't bring enough people with it. So it had a large readership, it had a strong readership, but it, the thing with BuzzFeed, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a minute, is that those badges with lol and wow on it, people actually literally wore those badges. And there was something about a sense of pride, albeit a hipster pride, about being affiliated with BuzzFeed. The pool had a huge opportunity for particularly female audiences, minority audiences, to be that sort of flag-waving site that really took on those issues and really challenged. And it always threatened to, and nearly got there, nearly got there, and never quite reach that thing where they could be organising real-life events and real-life parties and providing this sort of activist base that would have really moved that brand on. What's weird, though, is it seems to have been a shock for the staff who were working at the pool and for the freelance writers who were commissioned by them. They don't seem to have been aware of the financial difficulties the company were in at all. They were £760,000 in debt. They had an outstanding personal loan of forty grand. They borrowed £250,000 against the company's assets and lost £1.8 million in the previous financial year. Uh, But the editor, Kate Sevilla, on Twitter is basically saying she still doesn't know what the finances of the company were. She wasn't included in those conversations. They kept profit and loss away from the editorial team. And it seems like no one was aware that they were writing for this sinking ship and they felt a bit stranded when they then weren't paid. Yeah, I saw like an... um, Someone did an article yesterday and about this because she's a writer who is waiting like I think owed over seven thousand pounds and Laura in the evening standard yeah and she was saying that you know last August all the directors resigned bar one so someone should have noticed something basically (laughs) because that's the thing with the BuzzFeed ones like and these layoffs and the or the you know just not paying invoices and still working to the last day it's they're doing it in really mean ways well is it an irresponsible thing to do of course what's the right thing to I mean when your company's going into administration because what's weird is even for the readers there's not a notification at the moment if you go onto the pool's Twitter page it's just the last story they posted if you go onto the website it's the last story they posted that's sad isn't it I think it's because we're in an entirely new ground here when you think about the closure of today newspaper that made all the national everyone had this sort of real sense of nostalgia because it's the last edition and that was going to be the final thing that they ever produced and everyone was aware of it but now that we're in 2019 and we're seeing increasingly the digital media that expanded so quickly starting to sort of shrink at least to at least to my view we don't know what the right answer is and of course you've got facebook to blame a little bit you know the fail fast mentality and the idea of you know let's like move in break things which means you go in and you don't understand the human cost of this like laura wrote in the evening standard that's seven thousand pounds that she may or may not ever see and it's, but it's people's jobs, people's livelihoods, and journalism is a tough industry anyway, and now you've just got twice as many freelancers looking to pitch into articles and pitch into news organisations, and so that it becomes even tougher for these young journalists. Well, what's clear with the pool is that there was um, an affection from the audience, certainly for specific articles anyway, in particular campaigns and whatever that people liked. Did they fail to translate that into brand loyalty that meant people were checking their homepage, checking their email? Because um, that's the world that you're in all the time. Partly yes, and it's partly pragmatism. Like As a digital publisher, you have to be pragmatic. So you, you have to produce pieces that, that set the world on fire, lead news agendas. You have to do those pieces or else what's the point in being a media organisation? You also have to put in the hard labour underneath that for the sort of stories that will do you 5,000 views every day for the end of time. The evergreen explainers, the analysis, all of that sort of stuff that are the nuts and bolts of contemporary digital journalism. And from what I can see of the pool, it didn't do that well enough. And it 
didn't draw people back to its homepage because you know all me- digital media set up five years ago all focused on Facebook first mm. Google second and direct traffic third and, and the that- pull on email newsletters I remember Sam saying very proudly on, on Radio 4 yeah there's no revenue model in newsletters at the moment until someone way more intelligent than me figures that out it's great for brand loyalty and so if you're doing that alongside all the other activism that you're doing and all that sort of thing of if 100,000 people wear a pool t-shirt proudly then that's how your business model can work if those newsletters are just oh that's a nice bit of information close then it doesn't drive your brand home to your target audience and therefore not to commercial partners that pay your bills Rene you said that people wouldn't in this particular demographic that the pool was aiming at pay to Mm. read online stories Mm. is that the end game or do you think there is a possibility of of getting that audience to pay ever I'm at the stage where I'm start, I've started to pay for things, and people are. But it's just because Lenny Letter was the same. Lenny Letter went, is gone now as well, and it's the same kind of audience that we're trying to get. But what you were saying, you know, BuzzFeed did all of everything. It got people to, you know, it got the traffic. It, you know, made news. People were talking about it. People liked being associated with it. So there's clearly a bigger issue that I don't have no idea what it is. Well, it's what people used to call a bubble, isn't it? Isn't it over-investment in some of these titles? I mean, BuzzFeed, as we talked about in the last episode, huge amounts of money being poured into it that it couldn't justify in what it could make. You could say the same about Gimlet we were just discussing. So is that what it is? It's that people are too... They're spending money... So in the old days, (laughs) people used to be more conservative when they were starting a business. So say you got investment, you'd kind of spend it, you know, you wouldn't spend year one, everything. But are these businesses just going wild with the money? It's, I, I think, I'm going to humble brag a bit here. I was chatting to Ian Hislop about this last week because I was arguing with him about the future of how the media works. And it's that the most difficult stories and the most time-consuming and the most expensive stories are the least easy to make money from. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about human rights abuses, you, advertisers don't want to sit around it. You're talking about poverty, advertisers don't want to be anywhere near it. And that's the most important journalism that I as a journalist am absolutely certain that we, every news outlet should cover and cover properly. But there is no revenue model unless you're charging users for that. And so what you're seeing is the BuzzFeed model of the BuzzFeed.com and BuzzFeed News separating serious content from lighter content and I think what BuzzFeed will find is that the the less serious content is easier to monetize. And that's the scary bit that digital media has to solve. Okay, Uh, let's talk a bit more about digital media of a different sort, social networking. And Instagram has promised measures to limit vulnerable users' exposure to images of self-harm. This, of course, is in the wake of the discussion around the 14-year-old Molly Russell's suicide. Uh, Renee, talk us through the idea of these sensitivity screens. So they're going to blur out a sensitive image and you can then click through to it. So you won't not see it. So, but it's a double click. Yeah. It's, a, it's, in, so it's checking your intentions yeah. to see that image, not so to have a So I don't understand you. why you wouldn't just click through. Well, I suppose the idea is to stop you passively looking at it in your feed, it being algorithmically thrown up at you. Is is that it? It's partly that, but it, it's it's... Instagram being able to distance itself from responsibility. It's that whole thing about whether or not there's a digital publisher or not. Are you a publisher of that image or are you just a person who's showing it off? And I think my view on that has changed. I always used to think that Facebook and Instagram... Sorry, is Alex Hudson about to admit on the media podcast that he's changed his mind about I something? I changed my mind all the time. possibly might have been wrong. All of the time. So one of these years where you came on and really adamantly, <laughs> finger-waggingly talked someone down and said you were right, you, you're saying you actually might have been wrong. I'm wrong all the time every okay. day. Ask, ask my, I apologise to no. a journalist only Mike yesterday. drop. Show us <laughs> here. I apologise to one of my sports editors only yesterday. For like, where's this story? I'm like, I was making sure it was true. <laughs> oh, okay, fine, yeah. Um, I always used to associate social media that was like paper. Or like, so the, photo, the photocopier revolution wasn't caused by a photocopy, it was caused by people. It's not Instagram causing these images to proliferate, it's people causing the images to proliferate. And the thing that I'm changing my mind on is that increasingly I'm thinking that particularly to those under 18... I think there is a responsibility on those publishers to hide it. I think how they do that is an incredibly difficult job. And it might be just because I'm getting older now that I'm thinking of the children. Mm-hmm. But it's on those publishers to at least show some restraint. Like if people want to find stuff and censoring is the worst thing you can possibly do because it, it means those conversations don't happen. But the key issue for Instagram is to open up those conversations. It's almost like if you're looking at those images, um, same as Google do this with Samaritans, if you're Googling certain topics, mm. they will say, oh, here's a Samaritans number. Open that conversation. Don't just block it. 
begin that dialogue and open those chat conversations. Or else do, the, do the public understand that nuance, Rene? Because there has been a bit of a backlash against the initial responses from Facebook owners of Instagram that they do the kind of thing Alex is talking about because people have said, well, just take self-harm images off completely. You know, if it's leading to teenagers' suicides, take them off completely. But there is an argument for saying it's important to host a debate. I'd prefer the images gone because they're just, you know, when there's like a, a I don't know, so last year there, a, a young kid was killed in the Bronx and it was there was a hashtag justice for junior. And if you went into the Discover page, whoever liked the things, you would see his murder, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons I deleted Facebook because I don't want to see someone get murdered as I open an app. Mm. Would it, did it lead, you know, could it lead to conversations around, you know, youth violence? Yes, but I've got the news for that. And I don't need to see the murder. I think they shouldn't have these things on there. I think there's a tricky balance to be, because there's many reporting guidelines from the Samaritans, rightly so, around death by suicide and the, the risk of copycat and around how you report death and how you report murder and all around mental health in general. And it's vital that you ring up Samaritans. We, we talk to Samaritans like most weeks about how we report certain issues. But just by not talking about them, like the mental health stigma and the stigma around mental health is already huge because people don't feel like they can come and talk to adults or to just talk to their friends because they, they're, they're then instantly tarnished with that brush around, oh, you have a mental health issue, oh, okay, and then you're excluded from other conversations. It's part of a social network's duty to, to remove the stigma around those conversations and once the stigma is removed, then removing those images is part of that, but removing it straight away and trying to hide it out of mind doesn't solve the issue. But could you have... Because I agree with the mental health conversation, but you don't need... I don't need to see someone who's slit their wrists or who's cutting themselves to see, to have... In order for me to be triggered to have a mental health conversation, you can have those... You can. There's other ways you can create those um, opportunities for the conversation. You don't need the actual images. Because I think the images already fall foul of Instagram guidelines. Anything showing recent self-harm, so any scar that is not currently healed, is already against Instagram guidelines, so it should already be removed. And then that's a whole different issue about Instagram reporting issues. You know that, oh, this yeah. is fine, this is okay. Like, you know, when you see a horrible hate crime happening and it's not banned, and when you see something really mm. minor and it is... But the wider issue around blocking these and trying to ignore that conversation and remove your duty as a publisher to cover these responsibly, I think it masks over the problem rather than solving it. But we all know that there are issues around, on the internet, you know, in our real life experience, we all encounter issues around all kinds of taboo subjects which the mainstream media completely ignore, being an internet culture thing. Um, I should say at this point, both contributors are are nodding at me. But I mean, you know, whether that's illegal drug use or underage sex or whatever the thing is, on the internet, things get said, photos get shared, ideas propagate, which if the BBC, as they did on the 10 o'clock news with this story around a 14-year-old girl, put a light on, uh, it would be the end of every internet company, wouldn't it? They'd all have to come and say, we must take action. Isn't it time that people started doing this? I mean, because... It's like there's a disconnect in everyone's head between what they see online and, and what they expect of everyone else in the media. Fix, fix the issues. Like, same as like the child pornography, huge problem across the internet. Trying to ban it, it, it obviously it already is banned because it's horrible, but you're just driving those people underground, you're choosing them to get better proxies, better DNS servers. They're, they're more hidden from mainstream conversations. Same with the self-harm. The more you hide that, the more that's driven underground, the less you hear about it in the mainstream and the less it gets fixed. Then I guess the other side of that, one of the things that made me uncomfortable about all this was, I don't know if you saw the story, that the BBC reported a surge in calls to the self-harm charities following their reporting of this story as if... They'd open Pandora's box and all these people who were parents of children who'd been influenced into self-harm through Instagram then called up the charity. But actually, I was listening to that story and thinking, well, maybe that's the reason everyone's calling up, because it obviously is an issue. But also, you've had Hugh Edwards read out the action line on the 10 o'clock news for three nights running now, saying, if you've been affected by this issue, give us a call. Yeah, And that might be nothing to do with Instagram at all. That's about self-harm. I was just thinking about, um, what was that show? 13 Reasons Why. Yeah, on Netflix. And so season one was obviously documenting the teenagers' suicide. And then there was loads of complaints. And so season two was then about dealing with the issues, the mental health issues. They could ban the... They could try and... I mean, obviously, like you said, all these things that are banned, we still see them because they... You can't... It's hard to ban things. 
But if they created content that maybe made people talk about it, like the news was reading it out every day, so more people were like, oh, I could call this number. If Instagram just did something like that, you can still get rid of the images, but you're also doing the mental health campaign targeted at younger people. That would work. Yeah, the inst- all of these images are just a symptom of the fact that mental health, because there is more information available and people are more in tune with their feelings, that it's, it's impacting more people than ever before, and someone has to step in and do something. It's not banning images that that something should be. Okay, we'll have some media news in brief after this. Imagine a show uncovering some of the biggest lies ever sold by the Americans. Well, you don't need to imagine it, you can watch it. BBC Studios production American History's Biggest Fibs, hosted by Lucy Worsley, is now on BBC Four. And the very studios where we recorded this episode also provided offline services for that programme. RunVT's post-production house has 15 offline and two online editing suites, a bass-like grading theatre, a dubbing suite and a voiceover booth. Basically everything you could want as a creative being. Want to edit your next show? Go to runvt.tv now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Time for some media news in brief now. Renee and Alex are still with me. And Will Young has threatened Amazon's Grand Tour show with an Ofcom complaint and legal action after the latest episode featured homophobic jokes. Alex, have, have you been following this story? This seems like bread and butter at metro.co.uk, doesn't it? <laughs> we did cover this story and more than once. And it comes down to the Grand Tour having a particular image, just as Top Gear did before it, of being three white hetero men talking in a way that the 1990s thought was perfectly okay and now we're in 2019 it's less okay and it's Will Young challenging that to actually no actually your words have an impact particularly on young people particularly on young men and And the word specifically I mean it didn't it didn't get much worse really and I I don't mean to say this isn't offensive but it didn't get much worse than them saying the Wrangler Jeep is a gay car quote-unquote let's put a pink roof on it let's make some make some jokes of the kind that actually had the presenter's been gay probably wouldn't have been problematic the point was people insinuate don't they yeah, from Clarkson a certain tone but that's true they come with a backstory right you're not just seeing Jeremy Clarkson in isolation like he's just been invented yesterday maybe people might have given the benefit of doubt if he wasn't Jeremy Clarkson but those words have an impact like you look at the because poli- because kids get teased for being gay basically. well yeah but you, uh, the, when uh, the word gay was being used to mean bad oh that's so gay all that sort of stuff you saw a rise in teenage suicide attempts from the um, gay community like those as small as those things seem to us from the outside for teenagers growing up that is a huge problem and it has a huge impact because it makes being homophobic even if it's this sort of light fluffy ha ha hilarious homophobic kind of passable for society and on the actual mechanics of whether or not Ofcom can intervene on a show that Amazon are broadcasting this is where it gets complicated and I'm googling as we speak because I feel like we should know this, but we don't. So the actual thing is that Netflix falls within the jurisdiction of Holland, not the UK, even though it's broadcasting in the UK. Mm-hmm. And it has to abide by the terms of the European Union's Audiovisual Media Services Directive, which is a standard for on-demand services, potentially harm to children. Um, Amazon is even different again. So with Prime, 
it does abide by the AVMS directive, that's the audio visual media thing, but that to Amazon is enforceable by Ofcom in the UK. So sort of, but sort of not. There is a difference in the sense, I suppose, that this show isn't being broadcast in that sense of the word but, either to people who would passively watch it. You have to elect to watch it. You know the sense of humour. But I also think, forget ages and who's watching. Amazon, have a, they take our money, you know, from young and old people, and they know what homophobia is and they know what homophobic crimes and hate crimes are. Just put a stop to it. Someone could have edited that out. It's 2019. Well, this is Will Young's point. It wasn't just that it could have been edited out. It wasn't, like most jokes in, in those programmes, it wasn't an ad-lib joke, was it? It was obviously a producer's contrivance to do a whole storyline about this car being gay, complete with music, visual jokes and everything else. I just think we need to be smarter. It's tw- Like I say, it's 2019. It's not 1995. Well, it also is not 1989, which is when Sky News launched 30 years ago. What did they do to celebrate this week? They celebrate with all sorts of different things, but mainly around a big old... I'm not asking what Adam Bolton bought everyone as a cake. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying, what did they do on the channel? They they launched Sky News Raw, which was was this thing that ran for, I think, what was it, nine hours or ten hours? I think it was ten, yeah. Um, That was just the backroom, sort of behind-the-scenes footage of everything they did that day. And I think... People have reviewed it and said it was actually really successful about giving a giving a window into how hard working in newsroom is. They run it on a little bit of a delay to avoid well, like working in newsroom or my working life. There's a lot of swearing that happens in a newsroom. <laughs> you can't you can't run that live. And also, there's a lot of libelous things, you know, which of course said in a newsroom aren't libelous, but broadcast are. Yeah, which I that was my biggest concern. So obviously, I haven't watched all ten hours. Is the amount of stuff that we say? Can we say that X? Mm. Or can we say that X did Y? Well, no, obviously that would cost us you know twenty grand. legal fees and so the instant judgment was it a 30 second delay to know which bits to cut and anything even nearly libelous I think it's an incredibly daring thing to do I don't know that anyone outside the media bubble cared did it matter Renee that people outside the media bubble didn't care I mean people inside the media bubble noticed it thought it was a cool idea it does underline Sky News's credentials as innovative news broadcasters doesn't it which has kind of been their trump card forever yeah I think it was just a wasn't it just like a vanity thing like, real people don't care. Um, but good for them. I mean, The Guardian tried it and no one... Because you get instant metrics on how many people are reading that content. The yeah. Guardian tried it. No one read it. Because no... people have. We're trying to get people in to read our news sites, the actual news stories and the stuff that we spent hours and hours in. And that's an increasingly difficult task. People don't want to see how the sausage is made at the same time as we're trying to make people just view the sausages in the end of it. I think it's the real-time view of how the sausage is made that's a bit tedious, isn't it? I think, actually, if there was a sort of well-made, professionally produced BBC Two fly-on-the-wall documentary... W1A, about, that's, about, that's what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> about The Guardian's newsroom, for example, and their news meeting actually edited and cut down so you saw Polly Toynbee swearing and, you know, Mark Lawson off in a huff, that would be quite entertaining, wouldn't it? But I'm not going to watch the whole thing live. Would you cope well with uh, cameras viewing your day-to-day behind-the-scenes work process? Um, no, I would not like that at all. Um, we tried that with the BBC, and we found that no one cared, and no one wanted to well, watch it. Where was this? Uh, Today programme, and we tried it a bit on Question Time, which is more successful, but no one cares. What did you try? Uh, the uh, Today so, program. for Today programme, we tried to film sort of behind-the-scenes thing about you know how the presenters get ready, all that sort of stuff. Question Time, this was after I left, it became successful because it was uh, Dimbleby... Uh, sliding down part of the set that went mega viral and the audience have more pressing things to do with their time and we never got in- user engagement we never got audience for those things okay let's talk about the number of people cancelling their tv license and the burden of letting the over 75s watch telly for free Renee, do you think the over 75 should get a free tv license and if so who should pay for it because the government has put the put the cost onto the bbc um yeah they should because it was offered and bbc should pay Forever, even though that means yeah. a shrinking budget for well, until Because I think there's going to be a point when... So it seems to be going down each year. Well, not each year, whenever the data is... But it's going down, basically. And I think more what, what and more, the amount of people, amount of people getting their TV licence. And I think that will continue. And so at a point, they offered it, you know, you can't take it back. Well, you can. You can well, say yeah, in five years' time, we're going to phase out our offer to the over-75s. But then that's not fair. Because people were like, oh, yeah, when I'm 75, I'll get the free TV license. But they used to have a discount offer for black and white sets as well. I don't know if they still do. but I mean, That still exists. Right, fine. But it would be reasonable to phase that out now. It's not relevant. I mean, they used to tie it just to having a telly, and now they 
say that if you watch iPlayer, you have to pay. I mean, why not evolve the license fee? And why not say, look, it's not our fault the government made us pay for the over 75. Sorry, we can't give it to you. Because you're opening the Pandora's box of the regressive taxation policy around charging everybody, regardless of means, exactly the same fee. And that's the problem. Like over 75s, if they have the means, should absolutely pay for it. People who are younger, who don't have the means, shouldn't be have to pay for it. And it should be part of a main taxation thing that's entirely ring-fenced and still maintains BBC's impartiality. It's this weird regressive form of taxation that doesn't take into account a person's means. And that's the biggest problem with the licence fee. The licence fee should always exist and is vital for the BBC, particularly in news formats, particularly in unpopular formats, to exist and to be funded by the taxpayer. This isn't just currently the correct way of doing it. But giving free TV licences to the over-75 doesn't take into account their means. There's plenty of rich pensioners. Um, It doesn't, but I I think blanket offering free TV licences to the over-75s, when they are the richest cohort, the the baby boomers have way more money than the 20-somethings, entirely ignores the current financial state of which generation and generation after generation, and they're the people who watch the TV the most. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Stop it. Stop it now. Okay. So, right. So you're saying stop giving the over 75s the free TV license. Correct. But you disagree with Rene that over time, left to its own devices, the TV license would literally fade out because people would volunteer to stop paying for it. I think, I think you're right in the fact that there is a risk that it, that it might happen. I think we have to do everything in our power to make sure it doesn't. I think there are things that the BBC does that other broadcasters would not do. There are things that other publishers cannot do. And I think BBC is trying bloody hard to get less elitist and to bring out new voices and the thing that it's hit with its budgets is that it's focusing back on really traditional formats and not experimenting as much as it should. The BBC innovates with CFAX, all of these different things and now Netflix are doing this stuff or Amazon's doing this stuff and if you look at the difference in production values between a BBC original and a Netflix original it just shows you exactly the the limitations that the BBC's budgets are having on its content. Yeah, I've never heard CFAX compared to Netflix before. (laughs) No, like think about the innovation around that, think about the way that the iPlayer, Netflix doesn't exist without iPlayer Agree. So it was the C facts reference that I enjoyed. But I'm not saying it's wrong. <laughs> I'm saying it's, I enjoyed it. It's, the, imagine, it's nice to think about C facts. Imagine being in a Sky meeting or in, in a different TV, in an ITV meeting. Like I'm going to do launch this um, low low res information service that people have to click through on buttons. Nobody thinks that has a commercial viability because it doesn't have a commercial viability, nor ever did it. But the fact that the BBC can do that, even if it had failed horribly and no one would have ever used it, it is vital that the BBC has the money and the freedom to do that sort of weird stuff. I mean, Rene, the bottom line is at the moment they are shouldered with this and they do have to cut budgets. If you ran the BBC, what would you cut? Radio. Wow! <laughs> Shit! Not even <laughs> Jesus Christ! Not even Radio Four or something specific. Just Radio. 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 You'd audio or or just no, no, all the nations um, and regions. You could do, um, but the stations <clears throat> just make on demand. But it costs no, almost as much. You just asked me if I was running it. Uh, that's, sure. That's the yeah, I'm not criticising <laughs> you. That's just a. I mean, I'm not sure, actually, by the way, that the savings of cutting all of radio out of the BBC would really save that much compared to cutting just one TV channel. I mean, radio is cheap. They could get rid of... Does, do people watch BBC... Is it four? I think people do watch BBC Four, but it's oh. not very many. I mean, that, that is the, the BBC Four is the one that uh, does seem like the one that is serving the super served. If you want to create an impact, if you want to maintain BBC funding, you cut Radio 3. You threaten that, and then people, people go crazy for it. And it Radio Three doesn't cost anything, really, does Radio it? Radio Three per user, per listener is the most expensive of the radio stations. Um, but it's still not a big budget, and it does yeah, it's do not, the problem. It's a tiny audience, and it hits a certain audience that the BBC cannot anger because they have the loudest voices in Westminster and in the in the London bubble, and that's why like the the moving of BBC Three online is a terrible. It, it should have been fixed a long time ago, and that should have been the breeding ground for all manner of new content. Just get rid of BBC Two. Just get rid of BBC Two. But BBC Two is where they do the high-end drama it, and comedies. I think... Oh, now you like the BBC. <laughs> no, no, I don't like them, but that's You're where... You're right when I didn't have anywhere to broadcast. <laughs> but that, no, but I'm just saying that's the one where, you know, you test out the... That's their most interesting channel. It used to be the place where they tested things out. Now BBC Three is a place where they test things out. Well, for a certain no, that's for the young. That's for okay, no, no, un- I'm not going to judge. Renee yeah. would cut radio. <laughs> Alex would cut radio <laughs> BBC, three. And BBC two. <laughs> and BBC two. Uh, 
if you have views on this subject, the BBC are having a public consultation until the 12th of February. So if you feel strongly, you can tell them uh, at bbc.com slash your say. Uh, briefly, whilst we're on uh, radio, <laughs> before it ceases to exist, uh, the latest Ray Jars, although they are showing a decline in listenership, actually, um, is nonetheless relatively good reading for the radio industry. Greg James's first quarter in his new breakfast show at Radio 1 shows a growth in reach. Uh, I don't know if you're surprised by that. I mean, he's more popular than Grimmy, basically. Any surprises there? He's more popular, but I would also like to see the average ages of those listeners and the, the, the listeners that he's gained. I would be incredibly surprised if he has lowered the average age of the Radio 1 audience. And I think that's my main issue with that hire, is that it's a very safe option, as we were talking about before. And he's not zeitgeist. He is a lovely human, but he's not going to challenge the status quo of what the BBC cliche is to most people and i should say as well that we won't know the figures on the big new breakfast shows chris evans zoe ball lauren laverne we won't know about those until next quarter it is worth remarking i think that talk radio still hasn't cut through they've got this investment from rupert murdoch's company buying the wireless group they've got matthew wright they've got eamon holmes they've put loads of talent on air still no one's listening to it and it's not like people don't like speech i mean radio 4's gone down but lbc's gone up so why can't talk radio get an audience because of lbc if you look at the amount of quality guests that lbc are getting now and if you look at the sort of status of these people that they're getting lbc has become this sort of commercial rival to radio 4 and eddie mayer who's one of the brilliant broadcasters of his generation is now taking that station by storm and there's a relatively small gap in the market and they either need to push hard at it and market heavily and really either go big or go home or else they're going to be continually washed out by the BBC and by the big existing players. And also it seems that the results are in on Magic going 100% Christmas certainly didn't harm them. I mean, it's difficult to tell with a quarterly result because obviously December's just a bit of it, but didn't see a decline in listeners, in fact the reverse. So uh, do you think we'll be seeing more stations going 100% Christmas this December? I hope so. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, everywhere I went, um, every Uber, magic. <laughs> <laughs> it was full on Noddy Holder, was it, for the whole month? Yeah. Um, and also, uh, we've seen more consolidations in commercial radio this week, Alex. Bauer acquiring Celador and the Lynx FM group. Um, it basically means that a tiny minority of radio stations well, are now outside the control of the big groups. What was it, like 2.4%? Or Something like that, yeah. Some, um, that frightens me a little bit. But Why? then, Why? I mean, it's working, isn't it? It's keeping the radio stations alive. It's one of those things that we were talking earlier about, you know, is it the big conglomerates, is it the Facebooks and Googles who are to blame for this? Or is it just, if big companies come and take over, that's what podcasting is meant to bring. And we, podcasting is this new thing that's meant to be independent. For radio, it removes that innovation. It removes the sort of, you know, the pirate radio cliche and this massive nostalgia we have about what radio really was and the innovations that happened in the 70s and 80s. It's now just Greg James and people who look and sound like Greg James and people who play the same music as Greg James across all, every commercial channel. It's interesting as well to see the decline in Manchester of Key 103. It's only one quarter, but now they're called Hits Radio. Uh, the Mancunians appear not to be marking it on their radar diaries, and that's going to be a, a warning sign for Bauer as they try and roll out these big national brands. Putting a nice vanilla wash over all of the content to make sure it's popular and it doesn't offend everybody. Well, time to put a big, nice vanilla wash... <laughs> Over the end of the show, it is time, you'll be thrilled to know, for our media quiz. Before we start, uh, an apology for broadcasting some fake news in our last media quiz. Uh, We told you that David Tennant's new podcast was being produced by The Economist in one of the answers in our last edition, and it isn't. It's being made by something else. And uh, by the way, it is currently number one in the Apple podcast chart, so well done to them. Um, And by the way, number two is The Intelligence, which is the show that's being made by The Economist. So at least it was a newsworthy fuck up. Right, on to this episode's quiz. And this week we have found three stories about things that Medialand loves to hate. All you have to do is identify which I'm talking about. The winner gets a holiday for two in the sunlit uplands. The loser is off to a special place in hell. You will buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So Renee, you will say... Oh, Renee. And Alex, you will say... (laughs) Alex. Right, let's go. Question number one. What's the name of the new music request show on BBC Four, which got a critical kicking after the first episode aired? Oh, Rene. Rene. Friday Night Jukebox? Yeah, Friday Night Jukebox Live is the whole title, but I'll give you the point. Uh, Hosted by Phil Jupitus and Claire Grogan uh, and featuring tracks from the BBC's live music archive. Why did people not like this? So the thing that I don't understand is why you would choose a request show when you can just open your Apple Music or your Spotify or wherever else people listen to music. Companionship. 
the worst part about... You like about... 4G you're a bit pissed. <laughs> the I worst mean, part about We've all been there, haven't we? ...is people talking over the songs <laughs> or between your song. Um, sometimes you just want to hear the songs. That's called a playlist. Right, Jesus. She really would cut all radio. Uh, here's question number two. Um, which juggernaut lifestyle brand is to expand its output with a podcast Renee. partnership with... Wow. Renee, I've started, so I'll finish. With Delta <laughs> Airlines and a documentary series with Netflix. Yes, Renee. It's Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop. It is Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop. The lifestyle brand, often ridiculed for its endorsement of expensive ephemera, uh, are releasing a series of 30-minute episodes this autumn featuring... Uh, Gwyneth herself talking to experts about wellness will you be watching that there's no songs in that I listened to her podcast she had Oprah as the first guest so it's clearly going to be good people on the show so yeah I like to learn Oh, I like so, beauty. There is so little to learn about Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> no, but I like to know, like, if I need some Himalayan bath salt and what's, stuff. What's weird is actually Goop's like, much derided, isn't it? Even yeah. by the people who, who read it, they're like, this is obviously sort of medically suspect and, you know, there are a lot of wellness trends that are asking me to spend loads of money that I don't have. And yet... I mean, this is partly a kind of women's media thing. It's a bit yeah. like the Kardashians. I'm not sure I understand why I understand women them. get escapism in, <laughs> in some of this glossy stuff. But people no, like it anyway, yeah, even though they hate is, it. Wellness is super, like, everyone's doing it now. I'm obsessed with Korean beauty and Goop has a section. And, you know, we just, I like to just try and pretend I can look younger and be healthier. And that's what it's for. It's escapism. It's giving a bigger platform to someone with already a huge platform. And, you know, it's, it's brilliant business from Netflix, right? It's really clever because people will sign up and they will watch this thing. But I think the idea that we're going to expand our knowledge of wellness or mindfulness or mental health because of Gwyneth Paltrow and things that Gwyneth Paltrow is involved in is a stretch. And on to question number three. It's not the tie break, but you could prevent yourself from being humiliated, Alex. Which long-running breakfast show could be looking for a new presenter after its long-standing host suggested Alex. he wouldn't be there much longer? Yes, Alex. My former colleague, John Humphreys. Yes. Uh, he has told the Daily Mail, uh, of all people, that he assumed he would be leaving the political programme by the end of the year after 32 years, uh, in part to write his autobiography. A lot of people, I mean, we've, you mentioned that this quiz was all about people you love to hate. A lot of people have come on this show and slagged off John Humphreys, but it's difficult to host that show for 32 years, isn't it? People will miss him. That man is an incredible journalist, and I think that the biggest skill he has is that he can pinpoint the question that the audience wants answering. And that is a skill that is a lot more difficult than it sounds, and he's been up at 3.30 in the morning for, what? yeah, 30 years, right? So that's a testament to him and the fact that he's still politicians are still scared and terrified of this man and anyone who comes on there's always that sort of sense of when when I used to be broadcast assistant there you take them in and you could see them physically slightly sort of shirking a little bit about the fact they're going to face this man and that's just the power that 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 man has and the questions he asked and he gets a lot of criticism for the amount of the rumbunctuous tone he uses but that's part of his job. Renee, does your hatred of all radio extend to uh, boycotting John Humphreys as well? Yes. Okay. Well, at least you're consistent. Um, well, congratulations. You've won the quiz. Uh, and that is it for our show for today. My thanks to Renee Richardson and to Alex Hudson. If you're into what we're doing, then please help us survive. You can donate to The Media Podcast at themediapodcast.com slash donate and select a voluntary subscription to help keep us going all year round. You can also hear all our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.